0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my compatriots Barbara Bolin and Daniel Larson are trying to disrupt the machinery of the blob, one monkey wrench at a time. If you don't know who we are, I'm a longtime writer and reporter, formerly of the American Conservative, Antiwar.com, FoxNews.com, and now I'm the Editorial Director of ResponsibleStateCraft.org, which is the online magazine of the Quincy Institute. Dan Larrison, my friend for many years, has been writing for over a decade on foreign policy and national security issues. And he now contributes to Responsible Statecraft and antiwar.com. Barbara has also been writing on politics and foreign policy for many years and has worked at the Washington Examiner and CNS News. She also spent time on Capitol Hill working as a communications director for Congressman David Bratt when he was in office from 2015 To 2017. So today we are going to talk about Yemen. In 2015, Saudi Arabia launched Operation Decisive Storm in order to extract the Houthis from the capital city of Sana'a in support of the Hadi government. The U.S. government supported Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE in a coalition with weapons, fueling, and tactical assistance for much of that time. It was anything but decisive. After six years, uh, 230,000 deaths and raging famine and disease, the Houthis are winning and people are suffering, but the Saudis won't accept defeat or lift the blockade and get out. So I want to turn to you, Dan, first. President Biden told the American people early on that the United States would no longer assist the Saudis in this lethal war and that we would help to end it. So tell us, how's that going?
1: Well, unfortunately, it hasn't been going very well. Uh, After the initial comments that the president made uh, back in February, uh, where he committed to ending our support for uh, offensive operations for the Saudi coalition, uh, there's been really no uh, information coming out of the administration about what that means in practice, what kind of support the US government is currently providing them, uh, and and to what extent uh, our involvement uh, in, in, backing their military, uh, continues to enable the war or not. Um, and, and this was, uh, underlined recently when the, the Yemen envoy, uh, Tim Lenderking, uh, that was appointed earlier this year, uh, could not answer basic questions about the extent of U.S. support for the Saudi coalition. Uh, he was asked on, by several members of Congress, uh, while he was testifying, what, uh, What constituted U.S. support for offensive operations, what what operations were being supported by the U.S., uh, and and if he could explain any of that. And he couldn't. uh, and He actually said that he was out of the information loop and referred them to the Pentagon. And so you have someone who's supposed to be essentially running Yemen policy uh, who doesn't actually know what our own government is doing there. And so it's it's been very discouraging to see that. uh, And On top of that, though, you mentioned the blockade, Uh, the Biden administration has so far not succeeded in pressuring the Saudis and the UAE to lift the blockade. And indeed our government continues to uh, support the blockade in practice, which is ostensibly there as an arms embargo, but which in practice uh, deprives or or delays and impedes the delivery of basic necessities, uh, including fuel. And then so right now there is a fuel crisis in Yemen, uh, which of course is exacerbated by the actions of other warring parties in the, in Yemen, including the Houthis, uh, but but the, the the core of the problem is that fuel deliveries are being delayed or stopped altogether, and that makes it impossible to move goods around the country, even when they get into the country. Um, and this makes uh, the costs of basic uh, foods and medicines unaffordable for uh, the vast majority of Yemenis, uh, who have been horribly impoverished uh, by this last six years of war. And so the Biden administration's Yemen policy, I'm afraid, is, uh, it sounds very good uh, on the surface, and and they've said a lot of the right things, but they haven't really executed uh, as well as we would have hoped, Uh, and and they certainly haven't gone as far as uh, the anti-war activists would like to see them go. And uh, and that's why there's been a a great emphasis on uh, lifting the blockade first and not tying it to any other negotiations or any other diplomacy uh, as a a way of alleviating the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is of course the the worst in the world, uh, and uh, trying to uh, at least remove that part of uh, the war's effect on the population while they try to work out a a more lasting political settlement.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like there was a lot of hope when Biden was elected that this was almost like low-hanging fruit, Yemen. Right. There was such bipartisan support for getting out of the war, stopping the assistance to the Saudis, which has been unbelievably horrific in terms of the bombings, the airstrikes that are being used with U.S. weaponry. Uh, the Congress has tried to stop this several times. And during the Trump administration, which he vetoed any effort to stop assistance uh, to the Saudis, Barbara, I, what, what is your sense politically, uh, what this looks like, you know, to Americans when it, 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 does Biden look like he's flip-flopping on this or, not do, or just not doing enough? Is he distracted by other things? And why, why isn't he putting more pressure on the Saudis?
2: Well, I think it's interesting because he did put that block on selling uh, weapons. It, it was billed as a block on selling weapons to the Saudis. Right. Uh, that's how it was sold across the media. And that was celebrated. And actually, though, in the fine print, it was... So it was a block on... Sell, it was sold as a block on selling uh, weapons to the Saudis, which is what Congress had blocked, If um, and then Trump had vetoed. However, in the fine print, it was a block on selling offensive weapons to the Saudis, and the issue is that the Saudis have claimed this entire time that they aren't uh, doing an offensive war at all. So this is like it's a a sad uh, game in a sense. Um, you know, if we want to, if one side wants to say that that a war is not offensive or it's a defensive war. I mean, a war is always by nature, both defensive and offensive, right? I mean, so, and besides which this war is clearly offensive because it's occurring on, you know, it's not occurring on Saudi Arabia's soil. So in any event here, Biden got all the PR win, all the political win back then for his supposed pan on the weapons sales. But clearly um, they're still taking place. And here we are now. And I mean, what exactly is going on? His, his envoy doesn't know. I, I was particularly struck by another odd statement from uh, Linder King which was, besides the, I'm not totally in the information loop, which is, like, you know, (laughs) ridiculous. But he also said that he thinks, I do think we need to make sure that Saudi Arabia is able to defend itself. Um, Okay, first of all, that's not an issue for Saudi Arabia. But secondly, really? Is that actually the U.S.'s job? I mean... I'm sorry, but since when has that been the job in the United States? Um, I really don't think that that was pushed back on, but I don't think that that actually is our job. And I don't think that we, that taxpayers should be involved in defending Saudi Arabia whatsoever at all. Why? And especially not in this particular conflict when they brought this entire thing on themselves. So, you know, of course this whole thing where they reflexively say that like, oh, I think such and such country should be able to defend itself. You know, of course that that sounds right. It sounds like a good statement, but actually sometimes it's like a a ridiculous one.
0: Well, I mean, what, what you're forgetting or what we haven't raised here in the conversation yet is Iran. And so, which came up in this, right as well. And when Biden did make this sweeping foreign policy speech at the beginning of his term, he did say, I'm going to end the war, help end the war in Yemen. I'm going to stop offensive operations in Yemen, but we will continue to defend this uh, Saudi Arabia from its enemies and implicit, uh, implicit to that was Iran so what what the, they're able to do is parse this out and say, well, we're not assisting Saudi Arabia and continuing its fight against the Houthis or use weapons and fuel and tactical assistance. But when the Houthis hit Saudi Arabia and their facilities, which they have been doing with their own bombs and their own drones, that's when the United States can sort of use that sort of wiggle room to say, well, if we do assist them, it's because they had, they had been the target of Houthis and they, and we are defending and because those Houthis are backed by Iran. And so it all goes back, all roads go back to Iran. And so that's when you hear Pompeo in the last administration, you hear Lender King in this administration talking about Iran's nasty, aggressive influence. And we have to defend Saudi Arabia from the Houthis who are backed by our enemy, Iran. And I'm sorry, I talked over you, Dan, you're about to say something. Uh,
1: no, that's that's fine. And uh, you're, I mean, you're right. The, the, the Iran angle is essential for understanding where the support for this war has come from all along. Uh, the Saudis sold their intervention as an anti-Iranian move uh, because they knew that people in Washington would lap that up, even though it wasn't really true, uh, in the sense that the Houthis had a very limited relationship with Iran at the beginning of the war. That relationship has grown as a result of the war. Uh, and But as Barbara was saying, the, the, the self-defense plea that the Saudis make is uh, disingenuous. They wouldn't have to be defending against anything if they hadn't engaged in aggression against Yemen in the beginning. Uh, indeed, if if they stopped their campaign tomorrow, uh, it is, I think, fairly likely that drone and missile attacks on Saudi territory would cease, because there would no longer be any need for them. Uh, so the the idea, I mean, it's everything gets turned upside down when uh, Yemen gets discussed in the U.S. Uh, by by uh, a lot of people in Washington, uh, where. The, the people that are actually engaged in self-defense are the people in their own country fighting against foreign intervention. And the people that are engaged in aggression are the ones that are backing that intervention, and that would, that would be us. And, but we always, I I say we, pe- people in Washington, people in the government always like to paint our clients as the, the put upon victims, as the, you know, in some sense, the good guys, however absurd that may seem. And uh, so you know, we we would never arm and and support uh, aggressive despots, would we? Uh, but but of course we do. Right. Um, and this brings us to the the other issue with arms sales, uh, which is the Biden administration's green light for a big arms sale package to the UAE, uh, which had been negotiated as part of the uh, shall we say, say the bribe uh, to get them to sign off on the Abraham Accords. Uh, and this was a, one of the deals that had been paused. Uh, for review at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, but they're now giving it the thumbs up and letting it go ahead, and that's that's a really discouraging sign I think uh, on a few in a few different ways. Uh, Biden has made a lot of noise rhetorically about uh, emphasizing human rights uh, and and standing up for human rights, uh, but when it comes to our clients, that seems to go out the window. The the UAE is a, an egregious human rights abuser both in its own country and in other countries. Uh, it's responsible for war crimes against Yemeni civilians. Uh, they ran uh, torture prisons in South Yemen uh, through, through their own forces and through their proxies. And they continue to have a very uh, destructive influence in South Yemen and also in Libya uh, through the many proxies that they have and through their own uh, drone strikes and airstrikes. And uh, so giving, these, giving this government A huge weapons deal, including advanced fighters, the F-35, and advanced drones, the Predator, uh, MQ-9 Predator drone, uh, make or basically reward uh, the UAE for its war crimes and its abuses. And it, uh, it sort of makes a mockery of the idea that we're going to hold these governments accountable when we're handing them the most advanced weapons in the world after they just showed that they can't be trusted with what we already sold to them. Uh, and, and in the case of the UAE, uh, another thing to keep in mind is that they frequently hand off weapons that we've sold to them to their proxies. Yep. So uh, in spite of signing agreements saying that you can't pass this on to anyone else, you have to keep it for yourselves, uh, they engage in all sorts of weapons proliferation uh, in Africa and the Middle East. So handing them such advanced weapons is a, is a, a huge it's dangerous. Uh, it's
2: how yeah, we ended up with... Uh... Weapons, the same American weapons on both sides of conflicts. Yeah, you know, in Syria,
1: um, right? Like, yeah, in in and Syria and in Yemen. We, I mean, the, this stuff is Libya, ending up in the hands. Maybe, yeah, we, yeah,
2: like, yeah it's, it's it's actually starting to become a, a, a perennial problem. You might say it's almost like we do this on purpose, or you know. Um,
1: We are certainly not doing anything to prevent it. Exporter of weapons. Yeah, right. We're we're the we're the leading order uh, exporter of weapons. Uh, We we flood these regions with all kinds of armaments, and then we wonder uh, why they're unstable.
0: What bothers me the most is there was an investigation by the State Department. I believe it was State Department. uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. After there were accusations raised about the weapons that we were sending the UAE getting into the hands of al Qaeda. And there was a big it was I believe it was a CNN investigation. And so they spent about a year yeah. investigating this. and then they came out and say, "No, no harm, no fall.'re we're gonna, we're gonna uh, greenlight the, the you know, the pending deals. And this was about, I don't know, maybe six months to a year ago. Uh, but there was yeah. a moment of clarity that, hey, we caught you. And I, I agree with Barbara. It's almost as though they're doing this on purpose. And what bothers me the most about this is that the Biden administration has a ton of cover from progressives and Democrats, uh, and even you know uh, libertarian uh, uh, restraint-oriented conservatives to, to hold back on these arm sales. You know, nobody's pushing them, but somebody is pushing them. It's the it's the defense industry in the and in, in the backstage. Uh, it's the, it's the military, uh, because I, I see no reason why to rush this $23 billion
2: It's a lot package. of money. It's a and ton of F-95s, money.
0: drones, and bombs that we're giving them. Think giving
2: about them it. Big stuff. It's not only, not only is it a ton of money for the arms industry, it's also cleverly, and this is not accidental, um, these congressional districts mm-hmm. that manufacture the weapons happen to be distributed throughout the
0: entire United States
2: yes and they are sprinkled throughout democrat and republican districts okay. throughout all over so that they so that they will never be canceled like they will not be canceled even the people who you might think might do it you know, no, it won't happen. Like even the things that are the most wasteful, most ridiculous, like things that will never need uh, programs that, I mean, even it's it's really unfortunate, but there's very little motivation or incentive to get rid of stuff. But as far as I I do think that there is potentially more accountability in the weapons Uh, Tracking the weapons from some of the international um, groups that look at where the weapons go. Um, Some of the countries that look at this anyway, or some of the international groups that look at it, uh, as far as looking at where American weapons end up. But I wouldn't really trust too much what, like, congressional committees put out. Yeah,
0: I mean, it would you know, something that my, my boss, Trita Parsi, likes to say, and I and I fully agree with it, you know, aside from all the human rights uh, concerns, which there are many, with, with sending weapons to Saudi Arabia, UAE, and other human rights abusers, we are further entrenching ourselves in the Middle East every time we sign up for these deals in which, you know, F-35s this, this isn't something that we just sort of deliver on their doorstep and walk away. We are fully enmeshed in the maintenance um, and the training for these uh, weapon systems. Uh, it, it, we are tethered. And the more we send these countries, these Gulf states weapons, the, 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 the less chance we have to start extricating ourselves from the region, which personally, I think that, is, that should be our primary goal right now starting to get out of the Middle East where we can militarily and let the Middle East take care of its own security. But I feel like this ties us like an umbilical cord every time we send these weapons.
1: Well, it does, Amen. absolutely. It tethers us uh, and, and it implicates us in the crimes that they commit with the weapons that we right. provide to them. Uh, and, then when, and then in theory, it should provide us also with leverage but of course, Washington never wants to use the leverage that it has with the states that it has influence with. It only wants to, to try to pressure states that uh, already hate it. Uh,
2: well, the problem with that leverage is because it's it's a, um, it's a tie. It's because it works both ways, unfortunately. That's a, a trade-off. Like, OK, so then that's a trade deal. You know, a ten billion dollar deal is ten billion dollars that we lose if we stop trading with you, and they know that. So they know, hey, if um, and 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 they absolutely use it. It's the same thing with China, and it's it's been used ever since I, all the time. Instead of um, instead of it becoming this, uh, you know, the China's the whole thing with China trading with China becoming an opening for China has in some ways also become us feeling or us sort of becoming more um, attached to China in the sense that we know that we have to a lot of times do what they want because we also need their we need that trade—the trade, trade deal—and it's the same with, you know, these these weapons deals. If we want the, the the cash that the weapons deals provide, then you know we can't just walk away from it. I think that that's the problem that we kind of don't recognize once we walk into these things, and it's it's sort of like a a family that's living beyond their means. Yeah. you know once once you once once you kind of do that to your budget you know once you're sort of like at that point it's a lot harder to pull back and yep. that's kind of that's kind of where we are with all this
1: right. well, and certainly the the client states want us to think that we need them and that we that we depend on them in some way yeah right. uh, but but really I mean though every every time people look closely at this and, and look at what it is that we actually get from the clients for all of the trouble that they give us—it's uh, it, it's very little—and uh, and so you while,
0: hit it right there, on while, the
1: head. While there is Gosh. while there is uh, that mutual tie uh, created by these deals, it's it's one that we can afford to cut. They, they're in a much worse position if if we start cutting those ties, and so that I mean in, that's what ought to be giving us the influence to to pressure them into doing yeah uh, what we we what. Those of us here on the show uh, know they need to be doing uh, or stop doing in Yemen, and uh, it, it really is a question of political will in Washington to to go through with uh, threatening them with that cutoff. Um, and and unfortunately, we we still haven't seen that.
0: Well, I mean, and, and you also see uh, the the relationship with U.S. and Israel, and how that fits into this discussion. You know, they were pretty pissed off when, well, supposedly, reportedly, they were pretty pissed off when they heard that Trump had used this, you know, $23 billion sweetener of weapons offer to the UAE in, in, in exchange for them normalizing relations, uh, the so-called Abraham Accords uh, with Israel. Well, come to learn that Israel pretty much knew that this was all going on, but they put up a big head full of steam about it saying, oh, well, they can't cut into our uh, qualitative military edge, which has been this sort of the, this sort of ongoing policy in which we do not allow, you know, and it's it's true, our client states to have military weapon systems uh, that are more high tech, our capabilities are higher than that uh, or better than what we're giving Israel. And so we said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, we got to give, we promised these F 35s to UAE. So come to the Pentagon and we'll cut a deal and we'll get you even better planes and we'll get you even better weapons and we'll make sure we maintain your qualitative military edge. So they got something out of this. Uh, so um, everybody's happy. The, the defense industry is happy. Uh, the UAE is happy. The human rights abusers all over the Gulf states are happy. And Israel's happy. Who's not happy? The U.S. taxpayer, the poor people in Yemen who are starving and have en- endured these airstrikes for six years, the people in Libya who are, who are dealing with a with a fractured, unstable, uh, you know, hell hellscape there because of the you know the different the, the factions that are being fueled by outside groups like the UAE, which is which has sent arms to uh, General Heftar there. So I feel like the, you know, the, the despots win and, you know, the people lose as usual.
1: Absolutely. And, well, I mean, that, that ends up getting cast, uh, as we remember last year, when these deals started to come together, uh, it gets cast uh, by its proponents as uh, some sort of peace, even though there was no conflict <laughs> uh, to be ended, uh, when, it, when in fact, what it does is to fuel arms races and uh, reward war criminals. Right peace is always
2: it. weapons for the kings, you know? It's
1: yeah
2: that, that's what's interesting about um about all of this. It's and not it, it's not peace really should be right, kind of like nobody using weapons, but that's not the way that these guys view it.
0: And and let's not forget it also helps this, you know, this Israel, UAE, Abraham records, new weapon systems, all all helps to create a new security hedge against Iran. And so uh, I, I, you know, and and I know this is what the Trump administration had in mind, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this is, if this is how the Biden administration is operating, their mindset is that giving these weapons to the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel um, allows for this sort of um, security framework to serve against their enemy, their shared enemy, Iran. Just like they're trying to do in Asia with the Quad, you know, bring countries together who we feel that we can sort of um, build a network, a security alliance with against the, the shared enemy, quote unquote, China. And I feel like it's going to blow up in our face.
1: And it, well, it, I think it will. And, I mean, in a sense, it already has because what what Biden is doing is essentially the same thing as what Obama did. Uh, he was trying to buy goodwill. Uh, by th- throwing huge numbers of weapons at both Israel and the Saudis and UAE, uh, of course, I mean as we remember, Obama set a record for the num non- for the amount uh, of money that these weapons deals were worth with the Saudis uh, because he was he was trying to ply them with with so many weapons to keep them off his back because he wanted to pursue engagement with Iran, and th- in the end, he ends up. Uh, Siding with the Saudis in Yemen, anyway. Uh, Obama also so-called drone- reassuring them. Yeah,
2: sorry. Obama yeah. also droned more in the Middle. A lot of people don't realize because he dropped more bombs in the Middle East via drone than any president had before him. Right. Um, which a lot of people don't realize because he wasn't billed that way in the media. But you know, no pre- Right. <laughs> so- he didn't
0: brag about it like Trump would have.
2: Right. Um, But that doesn't mean that the people of the Middle East weren't being killed by in their sleep, just the same. So the truth of the matter is that this is not sustainable long term. I mean, and it also doesn't buy you goodwill. Um, It's not. So truthfully, all of these, it's not really a different policy. It's like Trump and Biden are doing the same thing with a different spin on it. And right. The media is kind of selling it differently, but it's really just the same thing.
1: Trita Parsi. He is the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, an expert on U.S.-Iranian relations, and the author of Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States, as well as A Roll of the Dice, Obama's Diplomacy with Iran, and most recently, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having
1: me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, Right now, uh, the other members of the well, what's now the, the P4 plus one, right? And Iran are meeting in Vienna, and they're also the uh, they're also meeting with the U.S. separately uh, to try to arrange U.S. reentry into uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA. Uh, while that's going on, uh, we're we're losing time as the Iranian presidential election approaches in June. Uh, what do you what effect do you think the election results will have on U.S. Iranian diplomacy, uh, since it's coming up uh, quite soon?
3: I think the negotiators in Vienna are working hard to try to make sure that things are done before the uh, decision comes down by the Guardian Council on who can and who cannot run for president. You know, the Iranian system has elements of democracy and plenty of elements of non-democracy in it. They have a Guardian Council that uh, determines whether someone can be a candidate for presidency or not. And Whereas in the past they would have to put forward public justifications, um, it's moved in an increasingly uh, opaque direction in which they can simply just disqualify people without any uh, explanation, which has led to scenarios in which sitting members of parliament apparently are then disqualified and can no longer run for re-election without any explanation. But the reason why this data is particularly important is because there's a significant likelihood that the the probably six to eight candidates that are allowed to run and stand for election will all come down and criticize the negotiations in Vienna one way or another for political reasons. That will further limit the maneuverability of the Iranian negotiators. uh, That already is tremendously limited. Uh, and has been a source of frustration for a lot of the negotiators um, on the EU and the US side. So it's critical to make sure that something is done before this new political uh, dimension is imposed on the elections. If we pass that date, then we have another problem, which is that I think by May 23rd, the IEA agreement with Iran will expire, an agreement that um, in which the Iranians post, essentially postponed uh, implementation of an Iranian law that would say that the IEA inspections are going to be significantly reduced if the United States has not returned to the JCPOA and lifted sanctions. The IAEA negotiated a, a three-month respite from that. That will end on May 23rd. So there's a lot of hard deadlines that are coming up. I personally thought that uh, it would have been wise to have, have all of this done already before the Iranian New Year. That may have been too ambitious, and it certainly seemed to have clashed with President Biden's uh, domestic agenda in which he put focus on, you know, the COVID relief uh, bill and other issues that he needed to attend to first before he could spend political capital on this issue. Uh,
1: certainly, and and, well, and one of the things we've been talking about uh, not on the show necessarily, but uh, among ourselves is how little time there is uh, between when Biden came into office and when, uh, that window would close uh, for successful diplomacy, and so I, I'm certainly hopeful that there will be uh, some success in the next few weeks uh, that we can point to. Uh, one of the things that's interesting we, we've learned recently is that CIA Director Bill Burns may have been meeting with Iranian officials in Iraq, uh, and so I, I was interested to get your take on this. Uh, do you think it's true that he is uh, engaging in back-channel negotiations like he did uh, in his previous service uh, when he was at the State Department, uh, and how valuable do you think that back channel uh, will be in furthering negotiations?
3: Well, if we start off with what happened in the past, the back channel that Bill Burns ended up leading, he didn't start it. It was started by Puneet Talwar and Jake Sullivan, and John Kerry, who actually was the one who brokered it and right. convinced the, the, the Obama White House to go along with it. Uh, it was absolutely essential. I mean, that's where the real fundamental compromise that led to the JCPA was reached. That's where the framework for a negotiation was established. And, and, and to some extent, the reason why Bill was sent was because he is considered one of the absolute best diplomats the United States has, one of the best of this generation. And it was felt that if there's anyone that can be able to really assess, if there is a there-there on the Iranian side, uh, it would be built. Uh, and also, he was the one who was given the instrument, the, the formulation in which the United States accepted enrichment on Iranian soil under specific circumstances. This is uh, the biggest concession, essentially, the US gave in the negotiations, I I hesitate to call it a concession because it's more of an adjustment to reality than a concession, but it was nevertheless seen as a concession. So all of this was done in these uh, secret talks. And I can tell you just with conversations I've had with the Europeans in the last couple of weeks who are the ones the US talk to, and then they, the Europeans, talk to the Iranians and then vice versa. They themselves are very clear. There's a limit to how far they can go with this type of uh, a mode of communication. There needs to be direct communications in order for a real breakthrough to be had. I mean, it's quite unlikely that either side would actually reveal their bottom line to a mediator. Right. If it happens, it happens in direct negotiation. So it's, it's quite a problem that that hasn't happened yet. Um, so given that, yes, it is not uh, inconceivable that uh, the Biden administration would use this ace that they have. Bill Burns to do something like this? Is it usually the thing that a CIA director does? Probably not, but that's probably okay. It's probably one of the better things you can do. Um, and um, But I think there's a larger context here that I think is really fascinating, which is that we now also know, for a fact, this we know, that there's been several meetings, at least five, since January of this year uh, between Iranians and Arab countries, started off with a UAE-Iran meeting, which then led to the Saudis coming in, and then also Jordanian and Egyptians. And what they've been talking about has been security in the region with a primary focus on um, Yemen, but it's not been limited out. This is really fascinating. There's no guarantee, of course, that it will lead to a solution, but it is fascinating for a couple of reasons it might be. First of all, this is exactly the type of regional diplomacy that we need, driven by the countries of the region themselves, owned by them, not imposed by them by anyone from the outside and driven by their own interests. That's what makes it durable. That's what makes it internalized. Um, And that is not to say that the United States or others cannot play a role, but usually we have the US coming and enforcing a diplomatic process on parties that are unwilling to talk to each other in the first place And then we expect that it's going to lead to a great solution. Sometimes that is necessary, without a doubt. But when it can happen like this, it's so much better. Now, again, we don't know where it's going to lead. You have that, and now you have the news of the U.S. and Iran also talking to each other in Iraq through Bill Burns' meeting with uh, the Iranian National Security Advisor, uh, Ali Shamkhani. Again, whether that is true or not, we don't know yet. The CIA has denied it, but obviously um, those denials, Uh, may have to be taken with a grain of salt. All of this is then happening in the context of Biden signaling during the uh, primaries that he too would like to de-emphasize the US's role in the Middle East and withdraw troops. He said during the primaries that he would take home the majority of troops in Afghanistan. Now we know that it ended up being all of them. He promised a return to the JCPOA, a shift away from the Middle East grip lodge. And we've heard now three American presidents make these promises, um, and, and two of them more or less have failed. Whether Biden fails or not is a different story, or whether you succeed. But I think it has reached a point now in which the other parties in the region, particularly U.S. security partners, have become sufficiently convinced that this time, at least they cannot count on it not being real. There's a decent likelihood that it is real. And what does that lead to? Suddenly, they're engaging in their own diplomacy. What should we learn from this? I think one takeaway from this is that as long as we were there, as long as we were committed, as long as we were saying, we're going to provide you with all of these types of security umbrellas, which, frankly, they don't deserve, but nevertheless, they did not have the incentives to engage in that type of diplomacy on their own. Because that diplomacy is going to be painful, it's going to be excruciating, it's going to lead to compromises, compromises that all parties would prefer not to give and and engage in. So as long as you have the option of just being able to hide behind the United States and have the United States take care of your enemies, fight your wars for you, and and settle your petty quarrels with your neighbors uh, without you having to compromise, obviously that is preferable obviously that is what the saudis would have opted to do and they would only move away from that when they were forced to move away from it when that option no longer exists and i think we've seen enough signs now that indicate that it would be quite a risk assuming that that option continues to exist if you're sitting in saudi arabia you see what the president has done on yemen etc i think you're kind of realizing no, that pro- that posture is not going to sustain itself, and as a result, you need to look at your other options. And now, suddenly, then diplomacy becomes attractive. I think this is the promise of having an actually a much more restraint-oriented uh, posture in the Middle East. Uh, the absence of American military dominance is not chaos. It's not these nightmare scenarios that the blob loves to throw out. On the contrary, uh, if the United States were to withdraw militarily um, and, and uh, clearly signal that that is happening, we see that before chaos, the countries themselves try to see if they can resolve their tensions diplomatically. They may not succeed. They may fail. But it is not this automatic gravitation to chaos as the blob, uh tends to uh, uh, claim. Um, there are other pit stops, and those pit stops may actually be far superior to the situation we
1: have right now. Definitely, and we've, we've seen with maximum pressure under the Trump administration and backing these clients to the hilt, that this has been extremely destabilizing, that this has been the, the source of conflict. Um, Kelly, I think you had the next question.
3: If, if I could just jump in one oh, thing there. Sorry. yeah. Um, there is voices in the reach who constantly have this expectation that the United States needs to come in and resolve this and resolve that. You know, if the United States goes into Iraq, they complain about that. If the United States doesn't go in sufficiently in Syria, they complain about that. It's, it's in my view, ultimately um, self-disenfranchising, um, because it's taking agency away from regional states and actors themselves. Uh, and ultimately, that's not good for them. Unfortunately, that, it is a phenomenon that it exists right now. But I think... This assumption that this lies on, which is the United States has the capability of resolving all problems, that assumption, I mean, the the entire proposition falls apart on that assumption because the United States doesn't have that capability. If we take a look at what's happened in the last 20, 25 years when the United States has been the dominant military force in the region, it's not a pretty picture. In 1998, the region suffered from five military conflicts. By 2019, that number had grown to 22. That's not to say the United States is all at fault for this, but the United States was a de facto hegemon during this period, and ultimately, it becomes responsible for it. A large part of it is the United States' fault because many, many of those conflicts are direct results of the war in Iraq, which was entirely the fault of the United States. That doesn't mean others haven't acted badly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that is what comes with having... Uh, you know, taking on the role of hegemony. You are responsible for it, the buck stops with you. And that's precisely why we should not want to have hegemony.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, Trita. This is Kelly, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, I'd like to turn back to domestic uh, politics or, or in particular how this is going to play out on Capitol Hill. I remember the fight over the JCPOA under Obama. There was a lot of blood on the floor uh, with Republicans putting up a pretty good fight. The lobbies here in Washington putting up a good fight. How do you see this playing out now? We haven't heard a lot. I know uh, Washington is is pretty much focused on uh, COVID and economic issues and the infrastructure bill and cultural issues. We haven't heard a lot about JCPOA, but do you expect uh, a fight to ramp up?
3: I do. I do fear that once there actually is something to react to, meaning that, you know, there is some sort of an agreement, there will be a major fight. Uh, it may not end up being a decisive fight because it is not as it was in 2015 in which there was a law that said that for this actually to be, um, Congress needed to have a voice in it. Um, well, the Congress had a voice in it, the law says nothing about the U.S. leaving and returning and that there would have to be a vote on that basis. But there will be a fight. And I think what I'm fascinated by is that on the Republican side, there are numerous factors as to why Iran has become um, um, uh, a political football of such popularity. Um, everything from, you know, uh, religious elements in the party to financial factors, to folks that genuinely may see the region uh, from a perspective very similar to that of Bibi Netanyahu. But I also do think that there's a limit to all of that, because once this actually become, comes to the point of an armed conflict with Iran, I think then the politics of this changes, because that war will be 100 times worse than the Iraq war. Uh, and I thought it was quite fascinating that Lindsey Graham, who otherwise is this uber-hawk on Iran, on, on almost every other issue, has constantly been pushing for, for more and more aggressive measures, actually counsel Trump against assassinating um, uh, Ghassam Soleimani. Uh, and obviously, I, I don't have access to his mind, but I, I suspect it is because it is actually quite politically beneficial to take that hawkish position. But not if it actually leads to a war. Then suddenly the political calculation changes. But as long as you're confident that it won't lead to that, or you're confident that you are not be blamed for it, uh, then it's you know it's a free for all, and and they're you know they're going to continue to push, and they're going to probably push very aggressively against a JCPOA return. Uh, and I think that's highly unfortunate because it means that then the Republican Party then is pushing for a policy that increases the likelihood of the very same type of a war that large parts of the Republican grassroots are now dead set against mindful of what we have experienced in the last 20 years.
2: Were you surprised with um, this the way that the JCPOA or the speed that the Biden administration sort of has approached going back into or, trying to get
3: back into the Iran deal? Um, well, actually, I was at first surprised that there wasn't much speed uh, mm-hmm. because the messages that had come from the Biden administration during the transition was that there would be a swift return. They recognized the time crunch that existed. They didn't want to run into the Iranian elections, all of those different factors. And then when the Biden administration came in, it seemed like it wasn't a priority at all and at worst, it looked as if actually there was a desire to see if, if Trump sanctions and maximum pressure could be prolonged for whatever negotiation benefits some folks may have calculated that it could bring about. I think a big portion of big reason as to why it happened the way it happened was because the president's focus was on domestic issues and he didn't want to spend any political capital on anything that could take away from his domestic agenda. Once that was passed then, there was a, a sea change. Uh, I spoke to one of the European uh, mediators or negotiators who said that, you know, we had the same conversation with the American side almost on a daily basis. And then suddenly one day, everything changed. And there was movement and there was political initiative and they had ideas and they wanted to move forward. So something changed and we'll probably find out soon enough exactly what it was. Uh, we can suspect that there are Ultimately, it was a decision to move, how that decision came about, why at that point and not earlier, uh, we don't know yet. But I think since then, it's been increasingly clear. They are moving with determination, and they recognize also that a return will have to deal with some of the minefields that the Trump administration left behind, such as the sanctions wall in which the, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on entities in Iran that already were sanctioned on the nuclear authorities, but now they sanction them again on the human rights authorities and on terrorism authorities with the specific and explicit motivation of making it more difficult for a Biden administration to return to the JCPOA. And it's precisely because it was so explicit that it actually may make it easier for the administration to get rid of them because these were not sanctions that were imposed genuinely on terrorism or human rights basis. They were imposed for sabotaging the nuclear issue. And as a result, they are uh, a nuclear uh, sanction at the end of the day. Let me actually add one thing here. It's quite fascinating. I'm kind of stunned that this has not been picked up by Washington, that when those sanctions were put in place, uh, folks like those at the FDD. Uh, voices in the administration explicitly said that they're doing this to make it more difficult to lift. Yes. Well, if you're doing something and you're doing it deliberately to make it difficult to lift them, you cannot at the same time argue that they are leverage in a negotiation. Because if something is a leverage, it by definition means that you have to have the ability to move them. In the negotiation, the US negotiator needs to be able to say with credibility, That if Iran does X, Y, and Z, we will lift these sanctions. That U.S. negotiated right now cannot say it with credibility because uh, the hawks in the Trump administration and their supporters in FTD deliberately designed these, as they said themselves, to be immovable. Well, if it's immovable, then it's not leverage. (laughs) It's an obstacle. Mm. And those are two fundamentally different things.
2: Is there any truth to the rumor that the Biden administration was delaying work on the Iran deal until they got their nominees past the powerful chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, New Jersey Democrat Bob Menendez?
3: Yeah, um, I I heard the same thing. And um, I think there's probably a degree of truth in it. Menendez has been a strong opponent of the JCPA. He was not a supporter back in 2015. Uh, he has introduced uh, legislation, together with Lindsey Graham, that clearly were designed to make it more difficult for the administration to return to the uh, um, So without a doubt, um, he must have factored in some way, somehow. If it explains the whole posture of the Biden administration of moving so slowly as they did in the beginning, I don't know. At the end of the day, I, I do find it a bit peculiar that Biden, who was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, would move on to become vice president, and then move on to become president, and then have his foreign policy dictated to him by the subsequent chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think ultimately, it's a matter of political will. If the Biden administration believes that this is important enough, they will put down their foot and they will tell the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, chair to uh, uh, adjust, I mean, obviously not completely dictate to him, but nevertheless, this is a priority. This is something that was um, written into the Democratic platform, a swift return to the JCPOA. Uh, Reality is, Bob Menendez, chairman as he may be, is in a minority in the Democratic Party when it comes to the JCPOA.
0: Trita, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk about the elephant in the room, Israel, which remains adamantly opposed to U.S. entry in the JCPOA. You had written in your 2007 book, Treacherous Alliance, that the 1990s were a turning point in the way that Israel approached Iran vis-a-vis the U.S. You wrote, quote, because Israel viewed a U.S.-Iran dialogue as a greater threat than that of Iran itself, the optimal strategy was to prevent a dialogue from materializing in the first place. The strategy of keeping the two countries apart has been in place ever since. How is that playing out in the debate over the JCPOA today? Israel seems to be putting a lot of effort into thwarting it.
3: Ultimately, I think Bibi Netanyahu will pose as much of a threat to the JCPOA as the United States allows him to pose. And what I'm trying to say with that is, if the United States wants to put down its foot, uh, it can. And in my view, it should. I understand that there are other repercussions that comes with that. But if this is a crucial national security priority, uh, preventing an Iranian path to a nuclear weapon, preventing a war, and incidentally, let me also make it very clear, the JCPOA is the ticket for the United States out of the Middle East. If there is no JCPOA and there is an uncontained nuclear program in Iran, the risk of the United States getting dragged into a land war in the region uh, increases dramatically. In fact, the only factor that really could bring the United States back into a war in the region is the Iranian nuclear program. That is why it's so essential for it to be uh, in a box in order for the United States to be able to move forward with its exit from the region militarily. This is also precisely why the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis are so against it. The JCPOA is is an existential threat to their worldview, which is that the United States' function and raison d'etre is to provide a security umbrella for countries in the region in the Middle East. Uh, And they, particularly from the Saudi and the Emirati side, they need the United States in the region to provide that security umbrella, to provide that favorable balance of power that they themselves cannot create because they lack that power. But the US putting its military finger on the scale shifts the balance in the region in their favor. The Israelis are not in as tight of a situation at the end of the day. Israel has cleverly developed a national security strategy that enables it to really fend for itself. This is not what we can say about the other countries in the region, or most of them at least. So as a result, Israel will actually be quite fine. Israel will even fine if the United States is not in the region uh, it would prefer the United States to be there. It provides it with greater maneuverability uh, and reduces the cost to it. But it will be fine. It is not going to be an existential threat in any way, shape, or form to the Israelis. But I think this has now gotten entangled in with the ego of Bibi Netanyahu. He has become the person in Israel that in the last 20 or so years has come to personify the argument that Iran is an existential threat to Israel. And as a result, he cannot stand idly by and see the United States strike a deal with Iran uh, and and start improving his relations with Iran because what is he going to tell his electorate that, yeah, this was an existential threat and we struck a compromise with it. So he is in a position in which is very difficult for him to accept the mindful of his own choices and actions in the last 20 years. Another Israeli prime minister could have dealt with this with far greater maneuverability. Ehud Barak, for instance, is on record since 1992 saying Iran does not constitute an existential threat to Israel. It is a challenge, it is a threat, but not an existential one. Because calling it an existential threat reduces Israel's own power. And as the former head of uh, uh, chief of army, etc., that is not something that he took very lightly. Three former heads of the Mossad in a row have said the same thing. Uh, uh, Ehud, uh, um, uh, sorry. Um, Ephraim Halevi says that Israel is indestructible, and as a result, there cannot be an existential threat. Uh, they rather exaggerate Israel's power rather than to undermine it uh, by calling Iran an existential threat. Netanyahu is in a different position, so it's, it's a political deadlock as a result of that. Uh, but Israel can adjust. The restraint by the United States in the Middle East is ultimately not going to be a threat to Israel. If I was sitting in Riyadh, I would be more nervous because in the last, what, 20, 30, 40 years, what have the Saudis done to actually be able to establish a defense in which they can stand on their own legs? I mean, look how badly they're doing against it in militia, in Vietnam, for instance. So they have much more reasons to be worried, but those reasons are of their own making.
1: Absolutely, and, and there's much less uh, appeal uh, here in the US to be trapped in the region forever. Uh, simply to guard the the, the Saudi monarchy. Uh, and so we, we certainly uh, aren't going to be interested in doing that for much longer, I hope. Uh, thank you so much, Trita, for coming on the show. I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, we really really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.